this will be the centrepiece. This will be the part that is of the most interest and the most utility to the widest number of people in the ACT, this ability to separate costs between different user groups. Welcome to Strata with Susan, the show focused on the complex world of strata law in the ACT. Your host, Susan Proctor from Proctor Legal, is an accredited specialist in property law whose daily focus is on helping clients with their legal requirements around strata, developments and commercial property. This is a show where Susan will share her extensive expertise, thoughts, insights and advice on strata law and welcome leading figures from the industry so that you can stay well informed around all aspects of strata law in the ACT. Here's your host, Susan Proctor from Proctor Legal. Very excited to have Chris Miller on the show. Chris Miller is the president of the ACT chapter of the Strata Community Association. He's a strata manager with many years' experience in both New South Wales and the ACT. And he's been on this journey of strata reform with me over the last eight years or so. I welcome Chris today and I started out by asking Chris to speak to his background in the ACT and our reforms. I am the president of Strata Community Australia in the ACT, so I wear that hat, but I am also the managing director of Vantage Strata, predominantly Canberra-based strata management company, but we also have a presence in Newcastle, so we straddle straddle the border. About 8,000-odd units under management, lots under management, depending on what state you're in. So in your, in your business, Chris, I understand you... You do represent quite a portfolio of residential and commercial slash hotel mixes of of developments. From a strata manager's perspective, I assume the management tasks associated with more complicated building envelopes where there's an integration of different user groups would be more difficult to manage. Our business, I suppose, specialises in the the more complicated, larger developments, uh, vertical communities. And as you get into those, you know, higher volume, larger volume type developments, they tend to be in town centres and, you know, more um, city type areas. And as a consequence, they're usually mixed use. So they're often, they'll have retail, office use and residential use um, combined into into the one units plan in the ACT in particular. Um, all under the one units plan. So, yeah, they tend to be they tend to be more complicated. Probably twofold. They're more complicated because the the buildings, the moving parts of the building, are, are more complicated in that environment. But the relationship between each of the you know stakeholders is more complicated because they all have different needs out of their units plan, owners corporation building. Would you say your experience in New South Wales has broadened your horizons as to what good management systems can be put in place or adopted where there is a legislative mechanism to do so? Oh, absolutely. Years ago when I worked for another fairly well-known strata business here in the ACT, that business wanted to expand into New South Wales and I went and flew the flag as part of that expansion and that was when I was exposed to uh, all of the different legislative frameworks that are available in New South Wales, far more sophisticated, a lot more complicated, a lot more difficult to get your head around. But once you once you have seen it, you can't unsee it. And I came back um, to Canberra a few after about two or three years in Sydney, but a great time, incidentally, but it came back, tail between my legs, back to Canberra. And since then, that, I don't know how long ago that was. Was that, that must have been about eight or eight years ago or something like that. But since I came back, 
you know, I couldn't shut up about the extent to which we could be doing it better here in the ACT, the, the tools that we should be applying here in the ACT because it's done just over the border and why aren't we taking advantage of these different mechanisms that I presume we'll probably touch on yeah. through this podcast. That is a consistent view that I, I hold and, and many that have been on the strata reform journey with us also hold. So in a previous podcast, I have spoken to Michael Hopkins about this and who's the CEO of the Master Builders Association. And their, their view is also that the more harmonious our laws can be and consistent with New South Wales for building a building, managing a building, occupying a building, it just makes sense. And as a lot of our clients are either buying units in, in both jurisdictions or building, developing in both jurisdictions or strata managers operating in both jurisdictions because we do, we are surrounded by New South Wales, it just makes sense to be as aligned as possible. Certainly there's a benefit in, in the harmonisation so that it's clear from one from one state to the next but to me it's that's just a that's a byproduct i mean the the main driver for me is the ability to more effectively manage these buildings and you know we we should harmonize with new south wales not because it's just easier and more even but because they do it they do it better the tools available to a strata manager in New South Wales are just far greater than than available to a ACT strata manager and to an owners corporation. There's all sorts of other, you know, I could wax lyrical about the other benefits that are as important, if not more important, but I'll just reserve those for the appropriate time in this conversation. One of the key drivers for the legislative reform was to facilitate or better address the mixed-use interaction in our built community where we've got residential unit plans that also incorporate by virtue of having a limited planning and unit title legislative structure to date are all contained within one unit plan. So the typical example that we've both experienced firsthand is Kingston Foreshore where we have the residential um, units upstairs and downstairs we have commercial and there's different uses um, and concerns that impact the different occupiers of those properties. One of the legislative changes is to better facilitate the adoption of a levy adjustment between different user groups that's on a basis other than allocation of unit entitlement. And that's a big change from our current system where that can be done but only via an unopposed resolution. It is and was a fairly well understood concept to have, you know, a split budget. And it, it was used more widespread in the ACT going back sort of more than five years ago. And then I think our market you know, became acclimatised to the fact that actually it's this really high threshold to this high ceiling to, to push through to get an unopposed resolution and, and to have to have achieved that resolution every year at every AGM. And, of course, people will vote against the budget not because they had some in-principle disagreement with the way it was constructed. They just might not have liked the strata manager or they thought the gardening cost wasn't enough, you know. So they the, the ability to achieve that threshold just was too great a task and then it just fell by the wayside, I think, for the most part and, and we just became used to, in the ACT strata managers and owners alike, just became used to, well, we all just have to pay from the one bucket 
split according to our unit entitlement. The new concept of being able to better address cost arrangements between different user groups and to enshrine that in a way that has sort of perpetuity, I think of all of the various changes that have passed in the February amendments, I think this will be the centrepiece. This will be the part that is of the most interest and the most utility to the widest number of people in the ACT, this ability to separate costs between different user groups. On the surface of it, it comes down to cost. Everyone thinks, and in some cases or in a lot of cases incorrectly, I, I think, everyone thinks that they're subsidising someone else. None of the, none of the, it's usually the residential owners have a bee in their bonnet because they're paying a higher cost of cleaning, you know, because the toilets that the commercial units use, their, their patrons use the toilets and the commercial guys have to clean that every day and they've got, they're annoyed about that and they want to be able to extract themselves out from that cost. That's sort of what it comes down to. I think that's a bit of a fallacy, to be honest. I, I don't think it actually generally stacks up like that. But at the end of the day, people want to, they want to be able to, use and pay for what they for what they use. They don't want to cross-subsidise. Even if in the washout it all comes out somewhere neat, there is a psychological desire to not have to subsidise the cost or contribute to the cost of things that I have no access to or utility of, which makes total sense to me. It makes it, to me, is entirely appropriate that you, that an owner's corporation ought to be able to, or a developer ought to be able to describe the, the way in which mixed-use owners corporation operates even if it's not part of a stratum it's just a, a sold units plan um, because it's not always practical or financially viable to create a stratum subdivision if you've got two cafes and a you know and a shop on the ground floor um, you'd, and, the, and then 150 apartments above I, I don't know many developers who would go to the go to the bother of creating a stratum subdivision, a subdivision in airspace um, to excise out the interests of the two cafes and a, and a shop from, from the re remainder. But it still is a worthwhile exercise to be able to split some of the costs that relate only to those different user groups. Certainly if I was the owner of the cafe unit, I probably don't want to pay for the, the chlorine and the swimming pool and the vacuuming and shampooing of the carpets on a level on a floor that I will never step foot on. And if I'm in a residential unit owner, I don't want to pay for the grease trap collection in the cafe. Well, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. So the ability to address that without having to go to the extreme lengths of a stratum subdivision, I think is a great advantage that we have here in the ACT. Strata managers have a real opportunity from one November to hone their crafts that they've maintained for existing buildings to step up to the role as advising the building management committee where a building management statement is required. A slightly nuanced role, but you will have had experience in New South Wales as to operating under both systems, one where you're largely governed by whatever's contained in the statement as to how to manage the building management committee and otherwise where it's a strata plan in managing the owner's corporation in accordance with the legislation. How are strata managers going to find their way through this process and the changes that are coming to the ACT? Yeah, well, look, it will be, it'll be, a, it'll be a mixed bag is, is, the, is the truth. Um, 
industry, you know, will and ought to lead the way in terms of education and access to information. But the, but the reality is it will come down to the individual businesses to identify, you know, the opportunity in really being at the forefront of those changes or, or if not, identify the risks of not having your head around it. Canberra is a bit unique in my opinion and I can say this with some authority having extensive experience in different markets. The degree to which our clients know as much and sometimes more than us <laughs> about the legislation and about the changes you know, is noticeable. Um, we've got highly educated, engaged, interested, you know, um, fairly affluent comparatively people that have enough time to really get on the detail of these things and they do and they hold us to account. So strata managers here in the ACT need to get a wriggle on to really understand um, what's what's coming and what's changing. The opportunity, I mean, to cut through deeper to your question, the real, anyone who's got half a brain or is interested in making a dollar would be out there shaking the the tree to capture all of those um, owners' corporations who would love to have had a split budget um, for the last 10 years that, that existed because they've got a mixture of townhouses and apartments or a mixture of commercial and residential or, or, or whatever, you know, rather than sitting around waiting for those clients to understand the opportunity that they might have and then ask their strata manager how they might assist, you know, we should be out there knocking on doors saying, hey, let us, let us help you, let us, we'll offer you a solution to a problem that you might not have even been aware was available. That's where the market leaders will go. Certainly that's where I'm planning to, to go, hopefully. I'm not giving away too many secrets, but, yeah, I'll be out there promoting our ability to proactively solve problems that some of these people have been living with for decades. So you touched on it before, Chris. A key issue that arises in terms of dispute is money and cost allocation and what's fair, what's not fair. Surely a strata manager is uniquely placed, probably the only person really in the equation that understands the costs or potential cost benefits from going a particular way, using a different cleaning company, different cleaning products or um, how to manage the air conditioning or management contracts or negotiating those. So understanding that that's a key role that the strata manager plays. How do you see strata managers contributing to the process of informing special privileges, cost allocation on a basis other than unit entitlement, working with potentially lawyers or developers at the start of a project. Can, can you tell me how you see that role sort of evolving as we move? The lowest hanging fruit is working with developers for, for you know, buildings that do not yet exist, working with developers for things, for projects that they're about to launch and getting it right from day one. That will be where you see, you know, the, the first signs of, of real serious activity. Retrofitting for existing buildings, I think, is probably the, the greater opportunity to go out and win some market share and be a market leader and, you know, make some make some money. That's probably the the slipperiest slope, though, and, and the most dangerous territory. And I and I would challenge you, I challenge your comments about strata managers being best placed and uniquely qualified and 
you know, really able to navigate their way through that because they've got the greatest handle on costs. Strata managers, without giving you a history lesson on the strata management industry, but strata managers, they're not all that sophisticated. We're not particularly sophisticated creatures. You know, the average strata manager is somewhere between, you know, mid-20s to mid-30s, not tertiary educated, without a uh, background in financial management or, or you know, um, project management or construction. You know, they're, they're, they're administrators, mid-level administrators, sometimes low-level administrators. Just by virtue of the way that our industry has evolved, a strata manager who was occupied with making sure the lawns were mowed and making sure the cobwebs were brushed away from the foyers of two- and three-storey walk-up apartment buildings in, you know, fairly unsophisticated built environments are now looking after, you know, skyscrapers with um, 300, 400, 500, 600 units with vertical transports and CO2 um, sensors and HVAC. So the same beast is now just over time is now looking after these far more complicated built environments. So um, there is, a, I believe, without, you know, you should always talk up your, your book. I'm not I'm not trying to be disparaging, but there's a deficiency in skill and technical understanding from within the strata management community. Now, that sounds a bit um, sort of negative and fire and brimstone, but I'll give you a good I'll give you a good example of where I think you'll you'll see problems with the approach of the strata managers just getting in and fumbling around and trying to retrofit this solution to existing buildings. It's a t- it's a typical argument from um, a commercial. Uh, mixed-use resi and commercial units plan that oh, we're subsidising the cost of the commercial units because we're paying for their grease trap and their waste collection and the cleaning of the toilet. So we're going to make them pay for the, just those costs themselves and, and their water, special levy because it's unfair for everyone else. Well, they rarely take into account that, you know, the commercial units are paying for all the carpets to be shampooed and they're paying for the lifts to go up and down that they never step foot in and they're paying for the windows to be washed and they're paying for all of these other costs that they get no benefit out of. So if you're going to, in my opinion, start down the path of making things fair and equitable, you really need to understand where that starts and where that ends and how far you take that. You can have the intention of making something fair and equitable by just excising out the cost of the grease trap and the water and the and the ground floor toilet cleaning. Your intention may well have been to make things more fair and equitable, but what you've really done is just taken out costs that everyone was contributing to, put them just into the realm of the commercial unit owners while failing to even consider all of the costs that the commercial unit owners subsidise. So... You know, there is opportunity there to get things um, right and do things better and and come up with new arrangements that are more fair and equitable, but you may well have an unintended consequence of making things less fair and equitable for one subset of users. How do you go about doing that? I think it's, you know, depending on how complex the building is and what the final cost allocation is and how high the stakes are, is it a quantity surveyor? that you should be engaging with? Should you should you first be getting somebody with some technical understanding of how the building operates to sort of describe all of the things that are happening um, as a starting point? Certainly you should be engaging with a lawyer to construct the, the rules in, in the ACT. The idea is going to be you set a, a rule, register a rule that that describes, you know, the um, exclusive access to some parts of common property and that you associate the costs with that exclusive use and that gets enshrined. I wouldn't want a strata manager, I wouldn't want any of my team trying to come up with that framework and get that 
um, worded correctly and registered and then be five years into it and find out actually it was done poorly and, and it wasn't clear and it was ambiguous and then, you know, Vantage Strata's in more strife than Batman because everyone's trying to sue each other. So there's opportunity that comes with legislative reform and it's long overdue legislative reform that we've been looking for. It's now almost upon us. Part of that involves additional or changes for owners' corporations. There's many changes. It's dense. It's complicated. There's a lot to it. But over time, it'll evolve and we'll grow and understand it. The owners' corporations moving forward will have an obligation to prepare a maintenance schedule for their buildings. That's going to impact all owners' corporations. In particular, that's going to be important in mixed use and where there are shared facilities running through the building that may or may not have a building management statement, may not be appropriate. There's a role that is commonly used in New South Wales for a shared facilities consultant that will actually put together the allocation mechanism and identifying the actual asset or facility that is relevant and where it appears in the building. So it's a whole industry of qualified people, but not with a particular job description. Uh, so they might have strata experience, uh, building experience, someone experienced in figuring out what an appropriate cost allocation would be for particular types of services throughout a building. That's not a role we've had to date in the ACT. I understand in New South Wales that any number of consultants might favour a different mechanism for cost allocation. What is fair to one party? Correct. May not be fair to the other. So what, what do you see um, as the, the role of strata managers and this additional role and perhaps other organisations such as Master Builders Associations and Owners Corporation Network in providing an understanding of who should be engaging at what point to get the best sort of outcome for an existing building or for a new building? It's probably got m more immediate application for a new development because that's the ability to, I mean, if you're talking about a stratum subdivision in, that exists currently, I presume, and you and I have discussed in the in recent past, that there, there may well be an opportunity to construct a strata management statement and develop a shared facilities register and retrospectively have that endorsed by the owners and, and use that as a tool going forward. I think that, that'll be an interesting space. I think it's a hard nut to crack, but I think it's worth worth pursuing. But we'll assume for the purpose of your question, we're talking about a new development and how do, how do we go about um, constructing the shared facilities register and working out who's, who has access and benefit of what and how they, how they pay the cost. The answer is I'm absolutely convinced that that role doesn't f land on the shoulders of the strata manager. I think the strata manager is involved, but I absolutely do not think that they are the correct consultant to make that recommendation in their own right. And in New South Wales, you know, interestingly enough, I've seen various different consultants that have been involved in the in the construction of those shared budgets and shared facilities registers and they tend to be like the surveyors a lot of the time the the same consultants that end up drawing the units plan and um i, I don't know oh, the strata plan sorry i'm not sure how that's landed in their wheelhouse it sort of it does make sense because they they know where it is they know where it is yeah and what it is and what it is so there's some logic that follows there where they have 
let themselves down in New South Wales or a lot of developments have let themselves down in New South Wales is the developer appoints a strata manager to, I don't know, construct a budget and their um, shared costs consultant to handle that part of the piece and their lawyers, you know, to do the conveyancing and their architects to design the building and the builders to build it. And they're siloed out as though they're not, they all don't have some relationship to one another. The best outcome, and I've been personally involved in advocating for this, and now once you've advocated for it and you've been through it and a developer has experienced the benefit of it, you don't have to advocate for it again because they just do it as part of the course. The best outcome is everyone sits around a table and collaborates on how that's all going to work and argues about what is fair and what isn't fair and who should be contributing to this because how do they access, how does the building actually work? And that process, it's not one meeting, it's probably half a dozen or a dozen meetings over a period of two years. It doesn't start and finish at the beginning when they when they plan the development because, Susan, what happens over the course of two years of a development that was planned two years prior, it sometimes is built slightly differently or changes are made along the way or concessions are made for a commercial owner who wanted a particular nuance and you know, access to a, a lift for for whatever unique purposes their business required. So you get to the end of the project and you've got to make sure that actually what you said at the beginning makes sense with the final product of what was actually built. So to me, the strata managers involved, you and I have had philosophical discussions about should they be paid for that? Well, of course I think probably they should, but at the very least it is in their interests because they're going to be looking after this thing to be involved in those conversations along the way, to influence the decisions that are made to influence the outcomes, certainly contribute to that discussion, but in collaboration with those various other experts and consultants that I mentioned. Chris, you and I have had discussions about how we can make sure our typical clients, our mutual clients and and owners' corporations out there and exec committee members can access and tap into education to make more informed decisions. Our constituents want that. And they are, as you've identified, generally very articulate and interested and and wanting to be all across it. As a lawyer, I can tell you right now, I've struggled in understanding some of the transitional obligations and, and how it will work and how it will pan out. And I don't think there's going to be any lawyers out there that can confidently say without a shadow of a doubt, this new rule that I've created for you will not fall foul of an ACAT challenge. So we still unfortunately have the situation where if people are genuinely aggrieved within an owner's corporation, the process to address that problem is to take it to ACAT. And unfortunately, at this point in stage one of the legislation, we haven't got to the point where an owner's costs are in any way covered if they are particularly aggrieved from a process, which probably has pluses and minuses attached to it. It's an interesting point and an area for concern. I I don't know the answer. You you may be able to tell me. But in the event, for example, where there was an aggrieved party who went to the ACAT because they thought that the, the manner by which the budgets had been constructed was, you know, manifestly unfair to them and they were successful, will that have the effect of of 
having to refund them for the period of time that they were under that unfair regime or is it from this time going forward that they're going to reallocate how the budget is contributed to? Is that, That's an area that... There is a period of two years. You cannot challenge any alternate rules. I'm on record telling a lot of my clients over the years, look, at the end of the day, you don't need to go to bed at night being absolutely certain that you know your position as the committee member was absolutely correct or that the rule that you've adopted is beyond challenge or argument. At the end of the day, it's a fairly low stakes environment. I mean, only just last week I gave some advice to a committee. The committee are fairly split about um, a request from an owner, should they allow, should they accommodate this request of an owner or shouldn't they? Half of them are saying, oh, well, you know, it's, it's really, you know, we should be trying to help owners live their lives better in, in their home and the other half of the community was saying, oh, well, the risks for allowing them to do this thing are too great, you know, and what, you know, what, to what extent have we got some risk associated with it? So my, my suggestion was, well, frankly, you don't have to accommodate everyone's desires just because this person is... Um, you know, really worked up about it and is really angry about it and they're threatening to go to the ACAT doesn't mean that you should, you know, cater to, to that fear. At the end of the day, take a position, say the answer's no, and if they go to the ACAT and, you, and they are correct, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, no-one's getting sentenced to prison, you know. You've made a decision um, with good intentions, you've been taken to the ACAT, the ACAT has told you that your position was wrong, well... That's an outcome. There's nothing inherently bad about that taking place. No one's getting fined, you know. Some of these, some some of my clients, some committees, people out there, they behave as though they're going to be sentenced to, you know, 10 years in the electric chair if they're found to be incorrect. Well, the ACAT is just a process of further refining and building on our understanding of what you can and can't do. And from that point of view, it's, it's a positive Certainly, if I was a strata manager, I wouldn't want to be responsible for proposing those rules. A lot of strata managers have in their agreement they'll charge 200 bucks or whatever for the drafting of rules. I think, that's, I think it's a mistake. I don't think they should put themselves in that firing line. If they're not qualified to do it, don't purport to be an expert and charge for doing that. I would be deferring those to lawyers and you know, the, the answer to the question, how can we be certain that these aren't, these aren't going to stand up to a challenge? Well, we can't be. Put our best foot forward. And if the ACAT gives us some rulings between now and the next couple of years, it will just build on our level of understanding of how to go about them. The thing that concerns me, though, is if someone was, you know, paying, I don't know, some commercial unit owner was paying 20 grand a year for the last three years, more than they thought they should have paid, and then they mount a challenge and then they're successful, do you have to wind the clock back and refund them and, you know, make some accounting adjustment? I don't know the answer to that. That'll be a bit of a an egg to try to unscramble, but... Which I think ACAT would have to address that in, in the orders if they were to make them. We're just going to touch on pets. Pets are generally a passionate area, passionate topic. So people that have pets are very passionate generally about their pets and people that don't have pets may be passionate about not having pets. Currently, a massive dispute going on in New South Wales in relation to a pet called Angus, its owner is objecting against the bylaws in that development that prohibit pets in the development. Our new strata laws prevent us from granting a rule that prevents anyone from having a pet. That case stands at 300,000 in legals at this point in time. There's a lot of really expensive people involved in it. Do you think our new pet rules are going to cause any issues or is it going to become problematic 
Well, I don't think it creates any greater problem than already existed pre the February passage of the of the amendment bill because going all the way back to 2009, the 2009 amendments that I think came into effect in 2010, um, that was the juncture where the ACT removed the ability for a prohibition on pets. So we, we were precluded at that point from of having any rule, really. I mean, in my reading of the Act, I don't, a lot of committees and strata managers and owners have, have, a, have a pets rule in their rules. I actually don't, I don't think that that sort of worked under the legislation pre-February this year or pre-November this year, more correctly, because it specifically, back in 2009, specifically took pets out of the rules and made it a fixed section of the Act that effectively said you have to get permission, but permission can't be unreasonably withheld. So the Owners Corporation had lost the ability to have a prohibition on pets for some years and it hasn't resulted in any $300,000 lawsuits and if anything, anecdotally at least, every time someone seeks permission for a pet and the pet's denied and it goes to the ACAT, every time I've been aware of it, the final ruling has been found in the favour of the applicant seeking the pet. So... I don't think it creates any new problems. I think it actually provides some better clarity around that provision. It allows in, it allows it to be expressed in the positive, where they can have a pet's permission rule that that you know without having to do anything else, people can have permission for their pet, which I think is easier um, than the regime where everybody has to apply and and. This whole idea of uh, permission can't be unreasonably withheld by the owners corporation doesn't acknowledge that the owners corporation is populated by people that, you know, don't know or understand the legislation, haven't read it, aren't, you know, there's no expectation that if you own a unit and you're a member of an owners corporation that you have taken any special effort to understand the Unit Titles Management Act. People just vote no out of ignorance or people default to no a lot of the time. So it's a hard threshold to meet because of that strange circumstance where the people making the decisions aren't familiar with what they can and can't do or what does unreasonable mean. I don't think it creates any particular problem. I'm a bit of a lefty, you know. I, I think having a pet, people should be entitled to live their lives. The owners corporation shouldn't be an authority to, to interfere with people just living their lives, you know. Their rules should exist to stop a problem when it arises or to address an issue when it arises. I don't think it should get involved in whether you can or can't have a pet in the first place. No more than I should be able to have a rule to say, oh, well, the neighbours aren't allowed to have kids because they're noisy. I mean, just, you could, how well do you think that would fly? Some people treat their pets like their kids these days. It's not too far a stretch to put yourself into that mindset. Chris, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and would love to have you on future sessions and particularly one coming up where we're going to talk about the strata manager gone bad. Look, it's been my pleasure to be here, Susan. Thank you. And I'd welcome the opportunity to come back. Thanks again to Chris Miller, the president of the Strata Community Association and managing director of Vantage Strata. The time that Chris has put into these reforms is immeasurable and has been very valuable and really appreciate his involvement and the learnings that we've shared over the years. And I'm sure that Chris will be willing to continue to share those learnings with you, the Strata community, moving forward. You can contact Chris as he describes and we look forward to having you on the show again. 
For this episode's show notes or for more information on how Proctor Legal can help you, visit proctorlegal.com.au or connect with me on LinkedIn and just search for Susan Proctor. To make sure you get the latest episodes, subscribe by searching for Strata with Susan on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or your favourite podcast platforms. And of course, if you'd like to get in touch and suggest a particular topic or ask a question for me to answer on the show, share a story or suggest a guest, I would love to hear from you. Simply visit proctorlegal.com.au to make contact. Until next time, thanks for joining me. Thank you.